Welcome to Committing Faith in Public, a podcast for people who want to be inspired by individuals and communities of faith, working for a more just, kind, and hospitable society. Through the stories our guests tell, we want to encourage you to commit your faith in public, too. I'm Gary Palusa-Verdand, Executive Director of the Center for Religion and Public Life at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My guest today is Dr. Marsha McPhee. Dr. McPhee is the Ford Fellow Visiting Professor in Worship at the Graduate School of Theology at Redlands University. That's in the San Francisco Bay Area. And for those of you who knew San Francisco Theological Seminary, Redlands University is where San Francisco is now embedded. The Graduate School is her teaching home. She is also a worship designer author, preacher, and ritual artist, drawing on her first career in professional dance and musical theater and equipped with a master's in theology and a PhD in liturgical studies. She understands the role of any worship artist in the church as that of creating extraordinary portals through which communities journey with the Spirit. The task is at once deeply theological and wonderfully artistic. She's a creator and visionary of the Worship Design Studio, an online experience of coaching, education, and inspiration and design application that currently serves over 700 congregations. Uh, She's the author of The Worship Workshop, a workbook for worship teams, and uh, very importantly, an avid skier. (laughs) You have have snow this year? You have have been able to get out skiing? The mountains have a lot of snow. The mountains have like 15 feet or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) She wrote Spiritual Adventures in the Snow, Skiing and Snowboarding as Renewal for Your Soul. Her latest book, Think Like a Filmmaker, Sensory-Rich Worship for Unforgettable Messages, has become a bestseller and is utilized by churches all over the world. Dr. McPhee is going to be speaking at this year's Remind and Renew Conference for Phillips Theological Seminary at the January 25th to 27th this month, registration online through the Phillips website. And Dr. Marsha McPhee, welcome to Committing Faith in Public. So glad you're here. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah. Hey, I took all of that from your bio uh, on the Redlands website. On your own website, it reads that she understands the role of any worship artist in the church as that of creating extraordinary portals through which communities journey with the Spirit. Tell us more about what that what that sentence means. I I I love it about portals and journeys with the Spirit, but uh, unpack that a bit for us. Yeah, you bet. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And of course, I love talking about worship and ritual have made my life's work about that. And so I'm happy to do that. You know, portal is a word that just uh, talks about an opening, a doorway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things as I did my PhD, which really focused on ritual studies, which is a sub Mm -hmm. subset, Mm -hmm. a field of liturgical studies, but also anthropology, sociology, you know, we're just fascinated with why humans do the things they do. And especially around. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that really affected my work in my studies is the idea that we cross over a threshold of sorts. And so in any of my worship that I design, there's what I call a threshold moment. And I teach churches to do this as well. And it is that moment where we shift from sort of the everyday kind of ways that our attention is focused Mm -hmm. to a very particular kind of 
noticing, a particular kind of openness, Mm -hmm. a particular Mm -hmm. kind of attention. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I use this word portal, is that I believe that it's important for us to understand that in worship, in ritual, and I use it, we can unpack what I mean by ritual as well, but Mm -hmm. there has to be this moment where the community together says, we're on a spiritual journey. And we cross Mm -hmm. a kind of threshold into Mm -hmm. a special time and place Mm -hmm. that feels different than just Mm -hmm. when we're hanging out, certainly feels different from a business agenda. And for me, too much of worship has felt like a list of things to do until we get to the end. And worship cannot be just another agenda. We have many of those in our lives. We don't need that in worship. And so even though you go through it perhaps in order of worship, it has to feel more like a journey than an agenda. And so Mm -hmm. passing through a kind of portal into what we all understand as a journey together with the spirit, that is what I mean by that sentence. And it, you know, it's, I spend quite a bit of time on it when I teach, because I think this is one of the most important things we can do to create worship that is more deeply what I call mm -mm good, meaningful and Mm -hmm. memorable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really what that's about. Wow, that's great. And I really resonate with it. I wrote a little book about 16, 17 years ago and called Paying Attention. And one of the things mm. I, I, I talk about is that, you know, attention is different depending on where we are, you know, and, and yeah. we don't have in modern church architecture anyways, we don't have much in the way of that portal as in the old medieval architecture or in other religions where you might enter a sacred space through some big gate of some right. sort to let you know you're passing through a a space and now now it's we're here to attend differently. Right. And so the beginning world. of the beginning of worship has to create that portal, right? right. Because we right. haven't been through the portal and so right. we need one to do that. And that takes a very special that takes more than hi we're glad you're here let us stand and recite Greet our call to worship together, yeah. you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. I really appreciate that. So let's go to that word ritual. And when we're talking about ritual, what are we talking about? And and given your studies and ritual studies, Mm -hmm. I'm also curious if you could give some examples, not only from ecclesial or or church life, but also maybe from public life. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Well, I am, in fact, incredibly uh, fascinated with with ritual as it happens, both in bodies of of worshiping uh, communities, but also in public life, in in our everyday lives, really, because, you know, humans were created for connection. And in order to have connection, we needed to be equipped to have shared stories, shared narrative, shared symbols, things that, you know, would bind us together. And that's really the root of the word religion, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Bind together. Mm -hmm. And so ritual played a big part in our development as humans. And so this this idea that we would have moments that would create shared meaning together were essential for our survival. And so Mm -hmm. as long as we've been humans, we have been Mm -hmm. ritualizing. Mm -hmm. It is part of our DNA. You know, my cup of coffee that I've got right here, you know, this is part of my life. (laughs) And it's Mm -hmm. part, it's Mm -hmm. not, and it's not just about the caffeine. It's about the mm-hmm. the making the coffee, the beginning my day. It you know, we all have these little things that are repeated patterns 
And some of them have greater meaning, some of them have lesser meaning to us, but they they organize our existence. Mm -hmm. And so when we get to talk about ritual on a higher level, which is that shared meaning, shared symbols, shared action, that's when we really begin to see the power of ritual in our lives and in our community making, in our meaning making, and what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about God, what we believe about the way the world works. And so it, at the very, very deepest place of us is our ritual making selves. Mm -hmm. um, we all do it. And, and I say that ritual forms and shapes us. The question is, to what are we being formed? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Every Absolutely. ritual will shape us and form right. us, but right. it may be for good or not, or right. for ill, right? So so that's the very base of what, what I mean by ritual. But I want to throw out a definition uh, by one of my favorite ritual scholars, Ron Grimes, who is kind of a, a, a leader in the ritual studies field. And I love this definition because it allows us to include not just church or religious ritual, but to include so many things that we do, including public ritual that's so important. He says, ritual transpires as animated persons enact formative gestures in the face of receptivity during crucial times and in founded places. Now, that is a whole lot. And I spend, that's you know, I'm right. getting ready to, to teach my ritual studies course this spring, and we unpack that through the entire mm -hmm. semester. But mm -hmm. Essentially, what he's saying is that ritual is not static. It's not a thing that is static or, or uh, unchanging. It mm -hmm. transpires, you know, spirare, breathe, breathing across. It, it, it's mm -hmm. a living thing by mm -hmm. animated persons. In other words, it's participatory. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it must be or it's not ritual. Um, mm -hmm. And they enact formative gestures. And, you know, action is one of the most important parts of ritual. Oftentimes, liturgical scholars focus on the words, <laughs> and really, it's the actions and symbols that are the things that form us the most. And part of my own research is in the neuroscience of ritual. And so that, mm -hmm. that action and that symbol-making uh, are parts of the brain that are so strong and indelible and formative. Uh, and so that's a really important thing. But also... You know, this definition says, in the face of receptivity. In other words, we come with an open stance, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's a reciprocal receptivity. We come with an open stance, and we believe, those of us, if we want to apply this to religious ritual, we believe mm -hmm. there is an other that is mm -hmm. also receptive to us. There mm -hmm. is relationship. Mm -hmm. And we do this, as he says, in during crucial times, so times that we identify, which, you know, sacred is just about set-apartness. That's really the mm -hmm. root of that mm -hmm. word. Right. And so during crucial times, that can be a once-and-done, like a baptism, um, it, or it can be a recurring, like communion, right? But a crucial time is something we, we do to set apart this special time to do something, and in founded places. Now, that could be a, a church building like you were talking about, or mm -hmm. it could be a group of people who circle up outside. And mm -hmm. just in mm -hmm. circling up, we have founded a place mm -hmm. that puts us in relationship mm -hmm. that already is a symbol of community. Yeah, a symbol a potential of who portal. We are. Yeah, it's a portal. Right in your own portal. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I would assume that one of the differences between habit and ritual 
Maybe that habit we often think of as something which, because you repeat it so often, you can do it somewhat mindlessly. Whereas with ritual, it's fullness of the Mm -hmm. meaning of the entering in of not only entering in the portal, but then Mm -hmm. then being receptive to the relationships would involve a certain kind of mindfulness to go along with that word attention. Yeah, that's true. And and yet I think that even our habits are formative, right? So mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. and and they create mm-hmm. some sort of meaning for us, maybe on a very low level. But yeah, my my PhD is actually in liturgical studies and ethics. And, and ethics, the reason yes, why I combine those, I believe that, you know, we are formed and shaped. And so I have a particular concern about the rituals that we do and mm-hmm. how those are shaping us as a community. But in ethics, uh, especially virtue ethics, we talk about practices, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. practices are very much akin to ritual. I mean, ritual is a practice, and there are practices mm-hmm. within ritual. Mm-hmm. And so these are those things that are, whether they're on a low level, like my coffee cup in the morning, or a more intentional level, these practices form us. And I use that term intention, intentional, when I teach worship design, because I think every choice must be intentional because it will act on us, whether we've thought about it or not. Mm-hmm. The colors mm-hmm. in the room, the lighting in the room, the the objects that we use, the way people are configured, all of those things, we have to think about those. We have to pay attention uh, because mm-hmm. they are speaking to us. They are acting on us. They are saying things to us about who we are that contributes to the narrative of who we believe we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the combination of, of liturgical studies and ethics. And maybe that's my own training in practical theology where I, where right. I, where I believe that, yeah, uh, like William James said, we are what we attend to. And, and if you're creating a, a, a space for people to enter, knowing that that's a formative space, there are lots of ethical decisions need to be made about how that space is organized and to, you know, how, how that puts people together or keeps people apart and, and to whom it is we think we're connecting. Yeah. So to your second half of that question about examples, you know, of course, examples within religious ritual uh, abound and probably, those of uh, your listeners, you know, may may quickly bring to mind some of those kinds of those kinds of rituals. But there's so many uh, rituals actually that I encourage churches to to look at and embrace that we that haven't been. So let's look at. I mean, we can think about worship, communion, baptism. You know, all these the you know, imposition of ashes, touching water to remember our baptism, lighting candles, all of these things are part of ritualizing. And when they when we stopped uh, stop attending to them as you said, we stop understanding the underlying meaning um and meaning is always meaning to somebody. So it's no any ritual, and this is the beauty of symbols, is that they can hold, we call them multivalent. They can hold right. many meanings. And as soon as you think you're going to pin down a meaning, you know, good luck with that. But let's take the instance of lighting candles in church. Um, let's say we've got two brass, ca- uh, two, you know, candles on the on the table, like many churches have, and they've got a plaque to Aunt Betty, who, you know, in memory of Aunt Betty. If we lose the meaning, over time, because we don't attend to it or we don't say it out loud, that the mm-hmm. that lighting those candles is an act of 
of celebrating the light of Christ Mm -hmm. central in our lives. Let's use the Christian context. Mm -hmm. If we don't attend to that, then the candles become more about Aunt Betty. And, you know, just try using different candles. Oh, that's right. Go ahead. Just try that. (laughs) Right? Right. Because we've lost the... We've lost the intention of the light, right. and the most tangible, visible thing to us is the the memorial, right? right? And so it is the, a delicate balance that's attending to the meaning and the symbolism of within our rituals. Now, public life is full, and you know what's ironic is last night I was watching uh, some of the things that happened in D.C. around, you know, we're recording this the day after the anniversary of the attack on the Capitol. Right. And there were there was lots of ritual yesterday related to that, mm-hmm. standing in moments of silence, standing on the steps of the Capitol with candles, you know, luminaries all around mm-hmm. to remember those who died in that attack and as a result of that attack. A stage in the midst of the rotunda where many things went on, including, you know, news coverage, that kind of thing, interviews with people who who were involved. And, you know, even the even the people that are present become symbols. There was a segment where they were talking to Capitol Police and there were widows of men who had taken their own lives after the attack and 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 their presence there made us pay attention in a certain way, in a very real, they became a symbol of the mental health crisis in this country that is, is born from the conflict that we are experiencing. Mm -hmm. So, oh my gosh, there's just so many ways that we ritualize, that we make meaning, make symbol in our public life, in our daily life, and in our religious life. Mm Mm-hmm. There are, because we are, we're storytelling people, and, and we, as you mentioned earlier, and we embody those stories, really, yeah. and partly through ritual. Since, the, as you said, since ritual isn't just about the words, it's about the actions, and the actions, of right. course, are what, what we do with our bodies. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's to tell the stories, but it's also to move through the stories, to transform the stories. Another great quote from, from Ron Grimes says that the primary work of a rite of passage, and that's really, there are many kinds of rites of passage, mm-hmm. you know, but even, even the way we want to transform a story, the primary work of a rite of passage is to ensure that we attend to such events fully, which is to say spiritually, psychologically, and socially. Unattended passages become spiritual sinkholes around which hungry ghosts, those greedy personifications of unfinished business, hover. And I love that quote because it's it's so true. The things that we shove into the rug, the things we do not attend to. You know, I've been consulting with churches for a couple of decades now. And, uh, you know, churches don't call me in when everything's going great. (laughs) Mm -hmm. they call Mm -hmm. me in when they're having Mm -hmm. trouble and Mm -hmm. oftentimes the trouble is met is presenting in symptoms of worship conflict right but the underlying issue is not about worship it's about it usually it's about something that they haven't dealt with grief over something that happened unattended you know stuff that happened that they didn't they just got a new pastor and they didn't talk about it anymore 
right? And so right. the safest place to express that that angst that's still there is to complain about worship. Like it's it's pretty safe compared to what the conversation that really needs to happen. Yeah. And so yeah. that's what rites of passage, you know, it, it's it's not only powerful, but it's important for us to understand that without it, we cannot move forward. Right. Right. Okay. So I'm going to throw out the rest of my script at this point. And if, you're <laughs> okay. Okay, if, if, if you're okay moving with what I'm about ready to say, then I'd rather spend the rest of our time. Okay. Talking well, about, we'll see. Bring it this. on. <laughs> All right. Um, so January 6th. So oh. this is something that in terms of both democracy and the future of Christianity in this country is something I'm extremely concerned about since I follow Christian nationalism and the way in which Christian nationalist ideas, I mean, it doesn't have to be all true believers, but the way those ideas have have spread Mm -hmm. and become so much a part of, of public life, especially for one party in this country, especially associated with the Republican Party. And when we talk about the ritualization of what happened on January 6th, it was startling to me to think that nearly every Republican legislator avoided being at the Capitol yesterday. And, and therefore, in terms of ritualization, it was, it was, there was the people there who thought this was some form of riot, insurrection, uh, violence against America's sacred symbols and rituals. Mm-hmm. Whereas we know that there's a large percentage of, especially those associated with the Republican Party, who have have spun this as it wasn't that bad. It, it was really a tourist day. It really wasn't that violent. And whatever violence was there was was really that wasn't from the supporters of the former president. That was Antifa inspired. Was infiltrated. It was a few bad actors. All those kinds of things. And I know some of your work has been around trauma. And one of my ongoing concerns, we Americans are not so good about ritualizing around trauma where the trauma is more or less self-inflicted. So, so the work around, you know, I'm in, I'm in Tulsa and Tulsa yeah. was in national headlines over the last yeah. year with the anniversary of the 1921 race massacre. And this is one of the places where there is a a strong case being made uh, for reparations for, you know, for very specific, uh, around a very specific event. Well, you can't, can't really talk publicly well about reparations unless you're telling relatively the same story and talk about different being different places and stories progress where we're at in that story in in that timeline is it is it the you know get over it which is also mm-hmm. what i'm hearing from from some of our fellow country people around january 6th just get over it right. you know we need to move on versus saying no no there's yeah. there's something unresolved here that requires our attention yeah. so for instance yesterday I was drawing on Walter Brueggemann and and saying, this is a day for lament. Lament is not something we do a lot of Mm -hmm. as Americans. I'm not sure how our churches do that. So anyways, I put a lot of things out there and I'd love for you to (laughs) jump on any part of that and and give your comments. Yeah, there was a lot there, but uh, thank you so much for those thoughts. So, wow. Yeah, trauma. And and really what you're talking about, it goes back to what we said earlier around 
the shared narrative, how ritual yes. helps us have shared narrative. Well, we have competing narratives going on, right? In many, yes. many places. And and it's it's in stark relief these days. I, I think we probably always had competing narratives, but it, it wasn't as vocal as it is now or on display. Right. And so the, you know, it, as relates to yesterday, you know, people not, certain people not showing up for these rituals is a way of saying, this is not the narrative that we're, that we're participating in, that we're, mm-hmm. that we're putting forth. Right. So, so yesterday was a prime example in those rituals of remembering a year ago of either uh, of one, uh, one set of one narrative being strengthened through ritual and another narrative being strength strengthened through the, the absolute intentional choice to right. not participate. Yes. And, and that is something about ritual is that we choose to participate or not. And in doing that, we, we align ourselves with certain narratives. So that was striking. And that was indeed powerful in its own way. It certainly sent a message. I'm going to, let me give you an example of something around trauma and ritual that, that was an interesting case study for me. Uh, I mean, it's a real thing, but it's a case study. I was the, the worship director and designer for two general conferences of the United Methodist Church in 2008 and 2012. And in 2008, the body mandated a ritual of an act of repentance to be done in 2012 that, that would be a repentance around the way that the United Methodist Church participated in the oppression of indigenous people. And so, you know, this was a four, I mean, we took all four years to, tr- to figure out what we were going to do. And one of the things that I was adamant about is that this was not going to be an act of repentance, mm-hmm. but an act toward repentance. Okay. And to me, that was very important because to participate in a ritual, there, there is lament as possible when you are first faced with the information. Absolutely. Like almost instantaneously, you can feel compassion. You can feel remorse or regret. You can feel many things. You can feel ashamed or, or that's probably not because shame takes a long time to to actually well, certainly uh, embed guilt. itself. But immediately you can feel certain things, but you cannot immediately repent yeah. upon hearing. And there, and I knew that the people who yeah. would experience the ritual, meaning the general conference, an international body, and those watching, meaning a lot of people who have who don't know the history of how the United Methodist Church, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. participated in the oppression of indigenous indigenous people. You can't just go to a ritual and then repent and say, oh, good, that's done. Right. You just can't. And to me, that is that is ritual doing damage. That's actually further oppression, if that's what you think you can do. So there are instances where we have to be very careful about the steps mm-hmm. toward healing because it doesn't happen all at once, especially around mm-hmm. trauma or oppression, violence against mm-hmm. persons. We can work on that a step at a time, but a rite of passage takes time, and part of it is a, is awareness. Mm-hmm. So I think that what makes it so difficult in our country, as you were talking about, in terms of these competing narratives, is that it's hard for us to have a shared movement toward 
reparations or healing from, uh, you know, racism and all of the incredible ills that have been perpetrated if, if part of us don't even acknowledge that it happened, mm-hmm. that it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is what is really glomming up the works, I think, in our society right now, is that it's what's real, what's facts is, is being debated. So how can we even move toward, you know, an ethical kind of response, which would include mm-hmm. ritual? And so, you know, the, in creating that ritual, finally, what I, what I determined and the committee, because it was a, a, a large committee working on it, is that we needed a first step and then we needed a way for it to ripple out so that this would be the ongoing work of repentance. And so, you know, a good ritual needs a symbol. And, uh, and so we had, you know, these, this is like a stadium full of 12,000 plus people. We brought in river stones for that ritual, and we had them in the aisle, the River of Tears, right? And the aisle was blue carpet, river stones mm. to relate to that trail of tears, to that river of tears. And we talked about that even the stones would cry out if justice is not, you know, offered. Mm-hmm. And so what I invited people to do is to take a river stone back to their churches. Cause this 12,000 people represented congregations, you know, all over the world right. to take that back. And then we, we provided them with, with materials and rituals to continue that repentance in their own place. And so ritual can help us ripple out, you know, a good symbol can help us ripple out the effects and continue uh, on the journey to, to figuring out what we're, what, who we are, what is the narrative, what is, and what is the response to that narrative? It's very complex and made even more complex in our day, as you have, as you have pointed out. Yeah. But important yeah. to do, and part of so ritual as protest then, yes, right, <laughs> right? right. comes in yeah. because yeah, it is yeah. about taking the attention or the intention up a notch in our consciousness. I am part of a church here in Claremont, California, that does a nativity every year. My partner is the pastor, and it has received, it's gone viral. A couple of years ago, it went viral, and then therefore every year it gets a lot of attention. But it's a nativity that they do out by the street, very busy street. And a couple of years ago, when it went viral, was when we were dealing, especially, and we're still de- dealing with separated families at the border, but mm-hmm. it was very much in the in top and center for us then. And so the, the Mary Joseph and the baby were in three separate cages. And we're talking hate mail, we're talking death threats, mm-hmm. we're talking mm-hmm. all kinds of things, because, especially because... Here's this icon, this religious icon that we hold dear, and to and for people to imagine that family separated mm-hmm. was unimaginable to some unimaginable, right? created quite a response, both in the in the it wasn't just hate mail, it was also a lot of appreciation mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. offering that symbol. And so at Christmas Eve we created a ritual because we can't i think the church is here to to give the image but it's also to give the image of hope 
And so on Christmas Eve, we took lights, lighted strands and connected those cages and invited passersby and people, whoever, to come and tie blue ribbons on those lights that were connecting the cages in the hope that, you know, like the Holy Family, we would want to be, we would never want them to be separated, that that mm-hmm. families would be brought back together. So it's really important for us to see symbol and ritual as that which can help us, like you say, pay more attention to something. It can pique our imaginations, mm-hmm. right? That right. that example is about saying, okay, this feels far off and not real, but put your most precious family in your own narrative of faith. Put them in that. Let them be stand-ins for those families. And how does that inspire you to, to action? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Marsha McPhee, with that tremendous example of committing faith in public, we need to conclude. Thanks so much for being on. I look very much forward to hearing you at Phillips Remind and Renew, January 25th to 27th. Are you going to be here or are you going to be joining us virtually for that? I will, as, as much as possible, I will be there in person. <laughs> I look forward to meeting you. Thanks so much for being on. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for having me. This has been Committing Faith in Public, a podcast from the Center for Religion and Public Life at Phillips Theological Seminary. Copyright Phillips Theological Seminary and Gary Peluso Verdant. The views and opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect official positions of Phillips Theological Seminary.